0: Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of 2018. I hope you all had a wonderful restful break and managed to get to spend some time outdoors and maybe you even listened to our best of 2017 episode. I recorded this new episode just before Christmas with a good friend of mine and I'm really excited to share it with you. Isla Hodgson is a zoologist working towards a PhD in conservation studying the conflicts between raptors and grouse moor management in Scotland. She is also a keen communicator, working as a freelance researcher for the BBC, and has just written her first book, Hidden Nature, which is all about British wildlife and where to find it, based on her blog, www.wherethewildthingslive.co.uk. Isla is also the Associate Director for the UK's Youth Nature Network, a focus on nature, which aims to bring together and support young people with an interest in the natural world. In this conversation, we discuss the role of bravery, particularly for women, in the conservation sector, how she has built trust with communities who often have reason to mistrust conservationists, and her process and routine for writing a book at the same time as doing a PhD. The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. We're a part of Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals. Find out more about us at wildvoicesproject.org Learn more about the global community at wild-voices.org Now let's dive in. Have you got any questions before we start? Uh,
1: not really. No. Um, like the sounds okay and everything. And
0: yeah, yeah, the sounds all fine. Yeah. that's
1: all grand. Yeah. Cool. Uh, no, I think I'm alright actually. Yeah.
0: Okay. Good. Well, let's <laughs> uh, let's kick off then. Uh, this could take sort of anywhere between. Somewhere between an hour and two hours. It's probably going to be closer to an hour than two hours, but um, is that okay?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. Okay,
0: cool. All right. Let's get started. Awesome. Um, so I was wondering what the most memorable wildlife moment you've had this week has been.
1: Oh, this week?
0: Yeah.
1: Ooh. Um, well, off the top of my head... Um, there's some otters down at the River Don. So I've actually been in Aberdeen for the last week, um, which is very rare for me. I'm normally traveling kind of all over the place. So there's a river that I used to get to university, which is really, really nice. It's the, the River Don, and it's got a whole nature reserve around it. Um, and there's actually three otters that live there, and there's quite a story behind them. Um, so the first time I saw one was the mother, and that was about a year ago, and that was over summer. And then I saw the two cubs as well after that. Um, and they were a lovely little family, and I kind of managed to follow them all the way through the year. And it was just brilliant to see them. Um, and then we had a bit of a scare, so I noticed they weren't there for quite a long time. Um, and kind of as you're walking uh, along the river, there's like a big wooden boardwalk, and there's always loads of people kind of standing there looking over into the river. And... Um, and there's a lot of cyclists down there, and I actually bumped into this really, this really nice cyclist who'd been cycling that route for about 40 years, um, and we were just chatting, and I said, "Oh, have you noticed the otters have gone?" Um, and he told me that unfortunately one of the the mother otters had been run over by a car mm. at the top of the road, and um, that there's a wildlife centre just out of Aberdeen, and they'd come and picked up the cubs who obviously had then been orphaned and were kind of rehabilitating them into the wild, back into the wild again. Oh, wow. And when I was walking along the wooden boardwalk the other day, I saw one just kind of poke its head out of the bank and disappear into the water. So it's obviously been successful, um, which is really, really nice. So, so yeah, I would say that's probably the most memorable I've had this week, I would say.
0: Oh, that's great. Otter is always good.
1: Yeah, yeah, and especially—I mean, I live in the suburbs of the city, but um, for people that don't know, Aberdeen's quite a small city, so there's a lot of traffic and a lot of people kind of packed into one really small space. So it's—it's it's kind of miraculous that this little family of otters are so close to the action, kind of thing, um, and they're just not bothered at all. So people kind of walk very, very close to where they are, and they'll come right up to the bankside, and I've seen them very, very close. So yeah, it's pretty awesome.
0: And they're visible in daytime as well, which is even more unusual for otters, right?
1: Well, yeah, I guess it's generally kind of uh, dawn and dusk. So the benefit of this time of year is that when you kind of get up early-ish, <laughs> it's still sort of dawn time.
0: Yeah. So
1: uh, I've had a lot of work to do and I've been teaching this week as well. Um, so I've kind of been up and about in the early hours just as the sun's coming up and we've had... We've had a lot of snow um, this week, but we've had really lovely, like, bright mornings and and, and things. So, yeah, so they just kind of slide into the water. These otters, you tend to see them kind of early morning time or late evening, if you're going to see them at all. And they're very active, which is really, really awesome. It's really cool to see them.
0: Nice. So how do you make sure, if you're, you know, when you're teaching and stuff, how do you make sure that you get enough time for wildlife in your day or in your week?
1: Um, So I suppose I have that walk, um, which it takes me half an hour to get into uni every day um, and back. So that was a really conscious decision on my part. Um, And I also, I can't really sit still for that long and I can't be trapped inside. So any opportunity that I have, I will go out. Um, I'm a bit of a nightmare in terms of getting work done or office work done, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I tend to... I work really well in short bursts and then I have to go and have a little bit of outside time. Um, So the university has some beautiful botanical gardens that you can go walk around and they're always full of garden birds and we get lapwings at certain times of the year and um, there's lots of uh, insect life around there as well. Um, So it's really good just to go for a little walk around there. Um, And I'm also really fortunate in that my field work kind of takes me to some of the most beautiful and remote parts of Scotland. Um, and I mean I, I conduct interviews but I sort of make it so that I, I go out for walks with the people that I'm with or um, they take me out into the hills or I kind of make sure that I fit a hike um, on the days that I'm you know out in the field just to get some kind of time to myself and some time outside in nature and outdoors because that's so important and I mean it's extremely important to me to keep myself happy and to keep myself motivated and um, I guess as a conservationist, it really helps me to stay motivated to kind of see what we're working towards saving, mm. um, so I make time for it. Nice, okay. Yeah.
0: So I want to come on to your field work and everything that you're doing at the moment, but I want to rewind a little bit and ask where, so this love of wildlife that you have, where did that come from and is it from childhood, and if so, what role did wildlife play uh, when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, when I was little, um, my mum worked as a nurse. Um, So I I grew up just outside of Newcastle, um, in kind of like a seaside town called Whitley Bay. Um, So we had the coast right next to us, but we also have loads and loads of fields kind of around where I live. So I was quite lucky in that I had a variety of habitats to explore. and I mean much as I am as an adult it was an absolute nightmare of a child to try and keep occupied because I had so much energy and <laughs> I couldn't sit still and um, you couldn't keep me indoors for love nor money um, and my mom worked nights as a nurse in the nearest hospital and um, so she was always asleep during the day so it fell to my dad um, to have the kind of heroic task of Keeping me quiet during the day and <laughs> which was which was quite a feat so he used to take me out into the garden or he used to take me out for walks and my dad was a painter and decorator by trade but he had such a love for wildlife and such a love for nature I mean he was a queen scout and he had a dream to be a park ranger and he was one of those people that just just knows a bird call when he hears one or he would Uh, be able to identify plants and what plants were useful for when you were out kind of camping in the wild and stuff. So some of my favourite memories are kind of being out with him and just I must have got under his feet quite a lot (laughs) but he was he was very kind and kind of answering all of my questions and and just kind of showing me a respect of nature and wildlife as well which I think is really important. So he always taught me how to maintain a distance or how to act appropriate, appropriately around animals and how to approach them so that it didn't fly away and be very quiet around them. Um, so I have my dad to thank for my love of nature and wildlife. and Obviously, I used to watch um, documentaries when I was little, so I remember Steve Blackshaw and I remember David Attenborough, obviously. Mm. Um, and I kind of just remember watching them and just being like, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is they do, doing, I want to do it. Um, so I'd always have had that love of animals from when I was very little, um, and um, an avid sketcher, and I used to lie on the carpet and just like sketch animals upon animals upon animals, just copying them out of books and stuff, so just to keep myself entertained, really. Yeah. Um, and that's I'm very very lucky, and that kind of childhood passion has never really gone away. And um, I still love to learn about wildlife, and there's there's so much to learn. Um, as well, which I think is why for a lot of people it's a passion that continues right through their lives because um, you never stop learning about it Yeah.
0: Can I go back to something that you said about your, your father? So you, t- you said he was a Queen Scout? Yeah. What is that?
1: <laughs> um, I'm not entirely sure I just know that he was one um, so I think my mum's going to hate me that I don't know this <laughs> as well and um, basically essentially he he was a scout but I think you have to go through certain um have to do certain tasks and you have to get through certain badges and things to be signed off as a queen scout so it's essentially like right. a normal scout but on steroids kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's
0: like what you graduate from being a scout into
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's tons of people listening to this right now, kind of shouting at me and being like, how do you not know what it is? Um, But I just know that's what he was. Um, So his certificate kind of stands in the bedroom um, and it just identifies him as the Queen Scout. So I suppose it must have something to do with Her Majesty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess they have to hit certain rules and things like that. Um, But obviously he spent a lot of time outdoors and in nature and um getting to know i think there was a lot of survival skills involved so we had to know kind of what plants he could use and what he couldn't um and they did a lot of expeditions and stuff so
0: and is there was there a particular um like memory of going out with him that that you know was particularly memorable or you're particularly fond of or had a particular influence on your love of wildlife
1: um, I think it was the first the first bird that I ever learned to identify properly. Um, so the first bird I ever learned to identify was a goldfinch. Um, and we had tons of them that used to visit the front garden, and I just remember they're so vivid and colourful, and they were such brilliant characters. I remember kind of watching them, um, and asking my dad what bird they were, and. Um, and he said oh that that's a goldfinch and um, you know they're very pretty like pretty little things I think he said yeah. <laughs> and we were in primary school and um, the following week and funnily enough we were learning garden birds and the woman was like holding up all the all the flashcards and stuff and then one of the birds that she had on the flashcard was a goldfinch and because we've been kind of doing like robins and black bears and all the generic ones, everyone just kind of looked at this bird and were like, I have no idea what that is. And I like threw my hand up. I was so excited that I knew the answer. And I was like, Oh, it's a goldfinch. Um, so that's kind <laughs> of like that's the first experience that I had of feeling that my knowledge was progressing with wildlife. Mm. Um, and the first time I was able to identify something. Um so I guess that's really stuck in my mind. Um, and that sort of spurred me on to kind of learn more more bird names and more bird calls and um, different, or, or just different species of animal really, instead of just kind of seeing them out and about. And um, so that started me off as learning, uh, learning of them.
0: Nice, and do you feel that that, um starting off learning the knowledge at that early age was really important alongside simply just having an appreciation for them
1: oh yeah definitely definitely because it it kind of added an extra level to it um and that it wasn't wasn't just sort of like a hobby anymore or wasn't just something that was out in the garden It, it became something that had detail attached to it and meaning um and it always meant that I had a very, a very active mind as a child. So I was always asking questions and learning more and more and more and more. Um, and it gave, gave just that extra level to that passion um, and that I continue to want to learn more about them. So yes, I knew that was a goldfinch, but you know, where did it live? What did it eat? Why did it keep coming to the garden? And um, why was it the color that it was? And um, and I think that's, that's really important to have as a child, is that sort of inquisitive nature, and to keep your mind active. Um, and sometimes I do worry that children today, they don't have that, that level of curiosity about the natural world. They don't want to ask those questions um, because they've got Google at their fingertips, which is an amazing tool but also, they kind of know that they don't really have to learn about it because they could just Google it. Whereas, I was still of an age where it that didn't happen. There was there was no such thing as Google at that point. Mm. So, you, so you kind of had to you had to read books and you had to make notes and you had to draw pictures, um, and like make field notebooks and things if you were going to learn that knowledge. Um, was and that was that something yeah. you did
0: making your own field notebooks and stuff?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um so in my when my grandparents died, we kind of cleared out <laughs> cleared out their old house. and I used to like fill you know, full a four pads full of drawings and little sketches and notes. and one of <laughs> I guess this is why it's come full circle. I was very surprised when I so I've written a book, but I was very surprised when I wrote the book, and I shouldn't have been because when I was younger, I used to literally, write these novels about animals and kind of fit the knowledge that I'd learnt about them and turn them into little characters and things in these books but we found them and they were just like my grandma had kept more and there were you know almost 20 of them just kind of stacked up like in one of our wardrobes um of just these really crudely drawn pictures (laughs) of animals which I obviously thought were really good at the time um and I tried to label them all and it makes me it makes me laugh looking back on them now Um, But I am really glad that I did that because obviously when I got to to uni, um, I sort of understood the importance of noting everything down and like having having just that extra level of curiosity. I think it really set me up for a career in science because as a scientist, you're naturally curious and you want to know the answers to many different questions and you have to think about questions all the time and really be excited about what it is that you're studying. So I think that really set me up for for my career actually is is doing all that kind of stuff and being really excited about the natural world.
0: That's really interesting and the note-taking as well is interesting because you know lots of people have different approaches to the quantity Mm. of notes they'll take or the way that they'll do it but is that is that kind of um, inclination that you had as a child towards taking lots and lots of notes something that you've carried into your academic career?
1: Yeah I think I mean it was my dad that sort of drilled it into me in the first place because he wanted to be me to be able to retain that information and I was really eager to. Um, so note taking and picture drawing and stuff and I mean I've, I think I'm, I'm a very creative person so when it came to going to uni and came to being a scholar Um, A lot of people would like write notes down on their their laptops or on the computer and I would always draw these like really elaborate kind of mind maps and I think that's just how I learn best is to sort of visualise things and like link things together on paper um, and draw pictures and take notes and put them in different colours and and things. So I think from quite an early age I was very aware that that's what worked for me and I mean I did it all the way through my A-levels and did it when I got to uni um, and I actually I actually find it really therapeutic is kind of writing down all the knowledge that you've gained and seeing it spread out and how it all links together and how it works how it all works together. And um, so I'm really really glad that I kind of figured that out very early on because it has helped me um, and it's helped me to kind of retain that information and help that stick in my head
0: hmm. so you so you moved to Scotland correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong, for university at the age of 17 and it kind of gave you this chance to move somewhere that was a lot more wild than than even where you've grown up, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, where I'm from is very much the suburbs. Um, so, like kind of English countryside and anyone that's been to Scotland will know it's a completely different kind of countryside. Um. I mean, there's a lot of very, like, almost like wilderness. I mean, obviously, a lot of it is managed. um, But there's a whole different subset of wildlife and a whole different kind of environment to go out and explore. And there's a lot less people as well, which means that when you go out and about in this kind of wilderness, you're more likely to have these kind of wildlife encounters And obviously, people like people might have heard of Scotland's Big Five, um, which is the big five species to see when you come up here. Um, And a lot of them are, you know, we've got the golden eagle, you've got you've got red deer, and a lot of them are very sort of magnificent animals. Mm. Um, Whereas I feel a lot of England's wildlife, although it's amazing and it's fascinating is a lot more sort of hidden and, and and very elusive and very shy and then you can i found in scotland it was a lot more sort of a lot more brazen <laughs> Almost. um and yeah you have to have a different skill set when you come up to you to scotland if you're going to kind of go out out and about and um, and obviously they've got the right to roam act as well which is essentially you can go anywhere and you can camp anywhere that you want as long as you leave the area the way that you found it. Right. Um, So that makes a lot more spaces open. Um, And I think just coming up to university, um, so I, I, I struggled a little bit when I was in high school with being a naturalist and being a conservationist because back then we didn't have social media or social media was in its very, very early stages. Yeah didn't have that sort of online community and um, to sort of share this passion with so I kind of thought I was a bit weird being really into <laughs> into wildlife and animals and things none of my friends were really into it so I very, I very much did it um, on the quiet or on the sly almost um, and at one point I thought I was going to go into teaching because that's kind of what all my friends were doing at that time and then it was my biology teacher who actually persuaded me to go and do zoology. He said, do what you're passionate about. And he said, what are you passionate about? And I said, well, animals and wildlife. And he said, well, go up and do zoology. And he'd would he done his degree at Aberdeen University, um, which is where I ended up going.
0: So, had you, had you been to Scotland before, as a child, before you took the decision to move there for university, or did you move there and then kind of discover this amazing place for wildlife?
1: Um, so, yes, we always went on family holidays uh, up to Scotland. Um, we always booked holiday cottages and went for big hikes across the border and things, so I did know it fairly well, um, and I had some really good memories. Of living in Scotland and it, and it was weird when I was applying to university Um, I mean it wasn't strictly a conscious decision but I, I realized that all the universities I was applying to were all in Scotland Um, <laughs> I think I think just the, the nature of it appealed to me so yeah. I was very into like outdoor activities and the availability of like things like going hiking or going surfing or you know, a lot of them are very available to you in Scotland, going kayaking and, and different things like that. So, I guess that side of it appealed to me. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm super, super glad that I came up here um, because I love it and it fits my lifestyle very, very well. And um, you can, if you if you want to, if you want to escape, you can literally drive, I don't know, an hour or two hours and be in the hills or being be in the Cairngorms, um, and it's just beautiful, yeah, so I'm very, very pleased I came up here.
0: Yeah, I have a very strong affinity for Scotland myself. Um, yep. can, can I go back to something that you said a moment ago, which was that up in Scotland, because the wildlife's different, you need a, di- you need a different skill set if you want to get out there and watch it. What Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by a different skill set?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say because the wildlife's different, I'd just say because the terrain's different. Um, so I guess you've got to have your wits about you, um, the weather can turn at any point. Um, so especially, so I work with birds of prey, which some of the time you don't have to go so high, but other times you do. Um, and you have to hike up these mountains, and a lot of the time you don't see anyone for a long, long, long time, and you don't have a signal either. So you've really got to plan where you're going and, um, I mean, watch the weather forecast because things can turn very, very quickly and suddenly you can't find your way back down or you get lost or people don't know where you are. Um, so if, so things like that, being able to navigate, being able to cope in the in the wild, always being prepared. So in the back of my car, I always have a tent and a sleeping bag and an extra set of warm clothes just in case I do get stuck anywhere because mm. um, a lot of the places that I do go are kind of down little single track roads where often you don't see another house for, for miles um, and you don't have any signal on your phone and all this kind of stuff. So I guess what I mean is that you've, you've just got to have that little extra level of preparation when you go out wildlife spotting in Scotland or working with wildlife because um, if you want to have those encounters you do have to go to the sometimes you do have to go to these very remote places um and kind of have your wits about you a little bit more and um, I mean that being said Wales is very much the same or some parts of Wales are very much the same and you can go to some parts of of England for example that are quite similar um, so yeah so I just uh, I guess yeah with Scotland Kind of like my dad. <laughs> you have to always be prepared.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to come on to speaking about your research um, mm-hmm. in a bit, but um, I mean, just reading through kind of the the blogs on your on your website and. Some of the stuff that you sent me—you've done so many things already—that it was kind of a little bit of a struggle to figure out where to start because there's just so much that you've done. But I was wondering if—no, um, no, no—it's no, it's it's really impressive. Um, but you. before diving into into any of the things in particular, I was wondering if across all the stuff that you've done, whether it's your academic research, whether it's the conservation mm-hmm. work you've done abroad, whether it's the TV stuff or the book writing. Are there mm-hmm. any skills that you think you've developed that ha- have been important to carry across all those different things? And maybe they're skills that you developed during your childhood and through through the time you spent outdoors with your father or maybe they're, they're skills wow. that you developed at
1: another time. Oh, lots. <laughs> lots of stuff. <laughs> okay. Um, I think the main thing that I learned when I was younger and going out with my dad, which is really important, and I kind of touched on this before, is a respect for wildlife. So, so yes, it's incredible, and it's exciting to see something. Um, but also, you have to remember that it's, they're living things. They're not something to kind of go and rush over and go and encroach on its habitat just to get a sighting of an animal. Or, you know, if it doesn't want to be disturbed, if it doesn't want to be approached, then leave it be. Respect that. I think that's something that my dad drilled into me from a very early age, and I'm, I'm really, really pleased that he did. Um, so he always taught, he taught me animal etiquette, so <laughs> how to approach. So you never approach a horse from behind, is what he taught me. Yeah. He, always, he always taught me to offer my hand first to a dog before I stroked it, because I had a habit of just running up to dogs and throwing my arms around them. Um, I still have that desire to do that every time I see a dog but I know it's it's not it's not polite my dad used to say so he used to say imagine imagine someone just came up to you and just threw their arms around you <laughs> how would you react to that and I was like fair point Um and that really helped me when I went out and did I've done a lot of kind of like animal direct animal handling experience um especially kind of out in south africa where you can't just go up to a lion and throw your arms around it else you know it'll eat you um, and yeah. so kind of like exactly so when when you're it, that a lot of that put me in really good stead to kind of work in places like that and um, so how to read an animal first and treat it as if you would treat another human being and um, so how to have that level of respect for that individual animal or its habitat um, and I think there's a really important thing about the Right to Roam Act in Scotland is that it's, you know, feel free to use this land, feel free to go and explore, but leave the place as you found it, um, which kind of us as humans aren't very good at doing. <laughs> we like to sort of go into a place and set up camp there. And, you know, I, th- I think just that re- that level of respect is a really important thing to learn and um, if you want to work in conservation or want to work with animals um in other respects i think especially in the last couple of years i've learned to really trust in my own abilities and my own skills and so a lot of the roles that i've i've had over the past couple of years have been moving more into leadership roles and so my phd for example is very much you're your own boss and um, you do have supervisors but they're there to advise you and um, so a lot of the work is kind of on your back and it's it's about kind of what you want to do and how you want to research it which is terrifying when you first start out and yeah. um, because you've, you've gone from you've gone from doing a an honours degree where a lot of the stuff was sort of spoon-fed to you and people told you what you needed to do and you had to get x amount of credits and do this to get a to get a first and tick all these boxes. Whereas when you go into into a PhD, they're kind of like, right, so what do you want to research? And how much money do you want for it? Um, And just then off you go. And you're sort of left to figure out how to build all these scientific papers and how to get your research out there and, and things. So, And then also coming into AFON and taking over from yourself and becoming... And um, the associate director of an organization and working how, out how to lead people um, as well has been a very, very important skill that I've kind of learned over the years. Um, and I directed a show for the BBC on my PhD topic. And I kind of had a lot of moments of self-doubt during that. Um, so I kind of built up experience working as a researcher in, um, in like factual programming Um, Where you're, you know, being a researcher is kind of you do everything from communicating with the contributors and making sure that everyone's happy, but also making sure all the facts are correct. And, you know, you're very much behind the scenes, whereas when you're a director, you're kind of running the whole show and you're working with people. So when I was working on the BBC show, I was working with people a lot more experienced than myself. And I had the, those moments of self-doubt where I was kind of like, oh, I don't think I'm, I'm quite good enough or, you know, I feel too young to be doing this. And you've, you've just got to kind of sit down with yourself and say, no, you, you, you can do it. And um, you wouldn't be in this position if you weren't being. And, you know, work out how to lead people without dictating what they're doing. Um,
0: yeah. So so and I want to so I want to come back I want to come back to the BBC program and talk mm-hmm. a bit more about what what that was about but mm-hmm. in in the case of the BBC stuff and with a focus on nature and with with your PhD how yep. do you make that transition from being in a situation where you know you've got more guidance into a position where you have to take more responsibility yourself and do that leadership role whether it's just leading yourself mm-hmm. or whether it's leading a team when you say you know you have to sit down and just have a word with yourself what 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 does that process look like does it look like seeking advice yeah. from other people or how did yeah. you go about doing that
1: um so it's a mixture of a lot of different things i think it's very important when you get into a leadership role to remember that you 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 are still allowed to ask for help and um, i think that's one of the things that i really struggled with is that i assumed when i got into these positions that People expected me just to get on with things and just to be immediately at that level. Um, but everybody has to work at it and everyone has to build their experience based on the relationships you make with other people. Um, and essentially, if you are in one of those leadership positions, you do have a team. And those team all have individual skills that you can pick up on and that you can learn from. And there is nothing wrong with that. And I think there's nothing wrong with even if you're in a leadership position, to kind of put your hand up and say, okay, I don't quite know how to do this, but I'm willing to learn. And then you'll build up that experience and that knowledge that that you don't quite have. But then there's also an aspect of, of having that confidence in yourself to know that you can do that. I mean, what really helped me was sitting down and writing down all the things that I'd done in the past and all of the skills that I'd gained from doing that. Because then you lay it out there and you kind of think, oh, I have actually done a lot more than, than I thought I had. And some of the skills that you gain from those different experiences, it might not necessarily be directly related to what you're doing now, but it will have had an impact on that. So kind of all the work that I did in Africa was extremely different to what I'm doing now. But it gave me a lot of confidence and um, you know, as as a person growing up, it gave me a lot of confidence to realise. I mean, in South Africa, I don't know if anybody's worked there before, but there is very little health and safety. (laughs) So they pretty much just like throw you in at the deep end and get you to do things that, for example, in the UK, you'd literally have to do years of paperwork to do.
0: Yeah, Um. so I kind of wanted to pick (laughs) up on in, in your email to me when you wrote, oh, and by the way, I darted elephant Um, (laughs) from from a helicopter and you just kind of wrote that in (laughs) passing which was almost like just begging me to be like so let's have a real like I really want to specifically know about that one particular thing
1: okay that that makes me that makes me sound like I just like drop it into conversation (laughs) like like people do with celebrities names um it must have had a point somewhere but yeah so I went out and did a vet course In South Africa, which was very very cool, and so I kind of in between my master's finishing and my PhD starting, I sort of built the PhD up myself. So I had to find funding, and there was a whole year where I couldn't find this funding. So I just kind of thought, you know, I'm just going to go off and do something cool. And so I went and did the vet course, and it was more because a lot of the animals. I think what people don't realise about Africa and South Africa in particular is that a lot of the animals on reserves are are managed Um, and so essentially what a reserve manager will do is travel around to other reserves and kind of go I want that animal or I want this group of animals Um, and what vets do alongside the sort of you know general health checks and you know curing sick animals is what's called game capture and uh, removal, which is like you, you dart an animal, and um, so that it, you know, goes down, and then you go and pick it up and put it on the back of a truck and take it to wherever its next home's going to be. And while you're doing that, you, you do all the health checks on it. So that's a lot of the stuff that we were doing. We did a huge variety of stuff, and um, but one of the things that I was most amazed about was on our first night, for example, we hadn't had we hadn't had any lessons. We'd had an introductory lecture and we'd practiced a little bit on how to inject something into a plastic (laughs) plastic bonterbock called bonnie uh, who I felt really bad for because essentially (laughs) what we did was just stick needles in her and I I would like to reiterate the fact that she was plastic she wasn't a real animal (laughs) and and we were learning how to use dart guns and how to use rifles and things and you know it I've worked before in Africa um, doing some guiding stuff and you have to learn how to shoot a rifle for that because if, if, if an animal comes in between you and a group of tourists and it tries to attack you, you have to know um, where to shoot it um, to kill it quickly, which sounds awful and I am so, so, so glad that I never had to use it and if you were on your own out in the bush and an animal attacked you would most likely just jump over an electric fence or climb up a tree or do whatever you could to get out of the out of its way but unfortunately when you were tourists you have them in your care as well yeah and um, so we will learn how to do a lot of that learning how to dart an animal um, which is very very cool and on our first night <laughs> after we'd kind of done a little bit of that we darted our first animal in the dark so in the pitch black Oh, wow. Um, yeah, So, and it was a enyala female, which is a type of antelope. And essentially what they do at nighttime is put a little blinking light on the dart and shoot the uh, dart, the animal, so you can kind of see this little blinking light. But some animals will have very different reactions to whatever you put in the dart. So it's an opioid um, called M99 is what we were using. Um, and you've got to be extremely careful with it. So a drop, a tenth of a milligram can kill a human if it gets into your bloodstream. Wow. So if you get a little drop inside a cut or something like that, you have to get the antidote in you within three minutes else, that's it. So that's how humans react to it. But some animals some animals get very chilled on it and just kind of like do this really weird kind of jerky run. <laughs> um and their, their tongue's hanging out the mouth and they just look like they've had one too many. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> funny. But but some animals will just run and, run and run and run and run and run and run until you trip them up with ropes or until they hit something. Um, so this Anyala female, she didn't react the way we thought she was going to. And instead she literally ran up a hill and straight into like a big thicket of uh, bushes. So it was about midnight it was pitch black um, and we were just like tearing our way th- literally through the African bush to try and find this dotted antelope um, and then we found a uh, loaded her onto the back of the truck and this animal is meant to be completely asleep so you're traveling on the back of an open top truck and you've got so many people around you you've got to keep the animal upright so that they can breathe properly so that involves people pinning down the legs, that involves someone sitting on the back, holding up the head. You know, there's, there's a lot of people and you're driving down the road at about 90 miles an hour, trying to get to this other place, holding on to this antelope. The least thing that you should be worried about is the, is the animal being awake. And bearing in mind this was our first night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, that, antelope, that antelope was most definitely awake. Um, it was trying to buck us off. It, was, it had huge, great big horns on its head and it was trying to bash us with them and um, trying to kick out his legs. And eventually we worked out what had happened is there was a French guy on our team who didn't speak very good English. Um, and everybody gets a job to do. The, the vet gives you a job to do and he's, he's very angry and South African about it and shouts at you. Um, and he had the antidote to the, um, to the dart, the stuff that's in the dart in a tiny, tiny little, um, a tiny, tiny little vial. And he turned around and he said to Clement, who was the French guy, um, do not give this until I tell you to, which Clement heard (laughs) as administer this straight away. So essentially what he did (laughs) while no one was looking was, was wake the animal up. So essentially, we were traveling in the pitch black on a main road with this <laughs> with this antelope that was trying to buck us off. But we made it in the end. So that was our first night. Um, okay, that was your introduction. Yeah. <laughs> and then after the day after that was kind of helicopter lessons. So the way an operation normally works is the vet and somebody else goes up in the helicopter with the dart gun and flies although the general area finds the animal that you're meant to be targeting and darts the animal out of the helicopter and then there's another team on the ground who go around and pick up all the animals that you've darted and do all the health checks on them and things um so it was pretty crazy yeah so, um, so, the so day, helicopter, so day yeah. one
0: day one was here's a live antelope that we're gonna take in the back of a truck at night <laughs> day two yeah. was now you're gonna get in a yeah. helicopter so so just, yeah. just just to go back quickly because i just wanted to check a couple of things that the darting mm-hmm. at night do you use infrared or torches or how do you even do that
1: um very it's a very difficult process um <laughs> so you don't go up the, you don't go up in the helicopter um to do that because it's too dangerous no 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 because essentially what what the pilot does is fly uh, it's called dead man's cave so it's between 10 and 15 feet off the ground so anyone that knows anything about helicopters is that is just basically you're putting yourself in massive danger because you're flying so low that there's a high chance the blades are going to hit something. Um, so you have to have a very skilled pilot, but even the most skilled of pilots can't do that in the dark. So you drive around in 4x4s in four and what they call buckies um, and use a bit use the headlights and use the torch to try and find the animal. Um, and it, it's very, very skilled how they do it. Um, and they've got the, the dart at night has like a little red flashing light on it. So that you can kind of see where it goes and where the animal goes and where it ends up, because then there's there's just this little red light blinking away. Um, sometimes there's a lot of problems with a dart, sometimes just falling out. So you like run and you'll find this like little blinking red light, and then all of a sudden there's not an animal there because it's just come out. Right. But that's 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 kind of how you do it, and and it's with great difficulty is the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, sorry, I cut you off. You were you were telling me no, about day two, which is the helicopter. That's
1: fine. <laughs> yeah, so you've kind of got to learn. It, it took more than a day to learn this. Obviously, there is some health and safety in Africa, but you know, you you had to learn how to. The pilot doesn't stop essentially, so he just lands. So you've got to learn how to run into the helicopter without getting your head chopped off by the blades, and how to put on your seatbelt and everything, and get your headphones on as quickly as possible. Um, and then you learn how to load the dart gun effectively in the back of the helicopter which is very dangerous because if you spike yourself for that you know it's not very good um, but the helicopter's sort of swinging from side to side and you know all this crazy stuff and then you learn how to um how to you take your seat belt off it's like the most unnatural thing in the world the helicopter's got no doors so you lean out of the helicopter um and if your feet reach, mine didn't. <laughs> you put your feet on the little bar that runs underneath the helicopter,
0: All right?
1: And um, for stability, and then look through the look through the viewfinder and aim. And um, the most ideal place is kind of right in the middle of the lower back, sort of like near to the near to the bum, I would say. <laughs> and it's quite handy that a lot of antelope in Africa have little targets patterns on the on the backside, <laughs> so you can like target for that but the way that we learned how to do it was with was with bonnie the plastic bontebuck right. so we strapped her onto the back of and um, so the guy that took our course was called hein it was absolutely brilliant and he used to strap bonnie onto the back of his truck and just drive and we used to follow in the helicopter and and dart to our heart's content. <laughs> and she had a GoPro strapped onto her head, so you could see where your shots were going. It was it was absolutely insane, but it was it was amazing. And 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 I mean, one of the things that I, I loved working I loved about working in Africa is that a you don't have to jump through all the hoops that you would do in the UK to do stuff like that. And b you're not treated any differently dependent on how old you are or what sex you are. They just treat everybody the same. Um, which is fantastic. So I you know, I I'm obviously a woman, but you know, when I was when I was younger I used to really struggle with being a girl. I used to always, always watch do what all the boys were doing mm. and like have have fun in that respect. And my, my dad and my brother were brilliant because they never treated me as a girl. They always used to let me do all of that kind of stuff. So, kind of working in Africa, sort of taught me that you know you can do those things as as a woman. You don't have to feel like you, you you're not physically capable, or you know you shouldn't be handling a gun or whatever it is. I know I know that's that's being broken down a lot in the UK as well, but there still is a kind of like a sort of a mentality about that almost that kind of girls can't do that kind of stuff. It's like more of a man's world. And I was I was a bit worried going into when I first went to Africa and I was completely on my own. And I went to work on a on a cheetah reserve where you're working with big cats. And I'm, I'm not very big. I'm five foot, five foot four, five foot four and a half. If, you know, I stand up tall enough <laughs> and, and they kind of when you arrive, they brief you on how to work with big cats and you know how to react around them because they were wild we were rehabilitating them to go back into the wild but you would go into their enclosures with them and um, and they did said now you're you're at an advantage a disadvantage because you're small um, and I said all right okay well you know what should I do about it and they were like you just have to stand it down you just have to stare it in the eyes and there were there were a few times when you know the cheetah thinks it can have its way with you and you just have to start, you just have to stand there and make yourself look as big as possible, and it's like, it's more of a kind of mentality thing than anything, and so that, that really, really, really helped me in in that respect, is just kind of feeling like I was capable, and that I could, I could do that stuff, and, and you know, you, you could do all the cool stuff, and, and I think, obviously, you are scared, and there's a lot of things that you should be scared of, but, you should acknowledge that fear so give it a seat at the table but then also give bravery a seat at the table as well and and give yourself a lot of self-belief and and motivation and I think that's that's really really helped me for a lot of the other roles that I've had is when you have those moments of doubt or you have those moments of fear to be able to kind of like overcome that and not feel feel that you can't do it Mm. and so working in Africa really really helped me with that. I think, because you, you were doing you're doing crazy stuff, you were doing insane stuff, like one of one of the things we had to do was drop out of the helicopter if the ground team were busy because someone has to be with that animal so essentially the, the pilot hovers and you just, because you can't jump because the blades are going round so you literally just have to step out of the helicopter, so step out into nothing, <laughs> just land on the ground <laughs> um, and the first time that i did it um i remember looking at the so the pilot turned around to me and and anybody that's worked in south africa will know this the men in south africa they will treat you as an equal but that also means they have no time for people who are <laughs> scared no time for people who are kind of who dither about they want someone who's just going to go right yep yeah, i'll do it um and they both kind of looked at me and went you're going to have to drop out and one, two, three, and I didn't really even have time to think about it. I just had to turn around and do it. Um, and it's kind of like you're running on so much adrenaline. And then at the end of the day, when you're sitting around the bra and you're having, having a few drinks and stuff, you do kind of think back on it and you go, I can't believe I just did that.
0: <laughs> so, the, so the helicopter's at like, what, 10, 15 feet at that point? Or do they bring um, it a bit closer to the ground for you to drop out?
1: Um, well... <laughs> they bring it, it depends on how nice the pilots feeling <laughs> <laughs> i feel like sometimes sometimes they like to test you and just see how far they could push you before you went you just freaked out um but no they would they would go as low as they could being right. safe but it costs more energy and more fuel to land the helicopter properly um
0: yeah, yeah yeah so
1: yeah and you just got to hope that you don't land on like a rock or something
0: yeah <laughs> I think it's really interesting what you said about giving um giving bravery a seat at the table. So I definitely know I definitely know what you mean about um about the height yeah. thing. I'm only a couple of centimeters taller than you. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and when I was in Indonesia for a year, you know, I didn't do anything as crazy as like jumping out of a helicopter to be with an animal that I just started. Um but you know, I pu- I pushed my limits um and did stuff that I never would have said to anyone before I went that I That I thought I'd have been capable of. Um, Mm -hmm. I listened to a really interesting podcast by someone else uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, interviewing a woman who's a female firefighter among other things Mm -hmm. in the US and she talks a lot about bravery and fear and she says that particularly for women because of the cultural kind of associations that you were describing that it's not Mm -hmm. for girls or for women to be to be brave. She said a lot of the time it's not about telling people to change their relationship with fear it's about telling them to change their relationship with bravery um, yeah. she also talks a lot about the concept of micro bravery so rather than necessarily diving <laughs> straight into the deep end and jumping out of a helicopter she talks yeah. about kind of building it up through through yeah micro-act. of course
1: of course and there's there's a lot of um i mean there's a lot of stigma attached to saying that you're scared and um, i think mm. it's it's not I th- especially in our society people expect you to be on your game all the time and i think it takes a lot of bravery to say i'm terrified i'm not okay um so i found it really easy to do all that kind of stuff in africa and i find it really easy to well not easy but um like obviously i had fear but it was more excitement than fear Whereas something that I can't deal with very well is, um, is like, heights, Like, re- like not jumping out of a helicopter, but, like, like upper, upper Monroe, for example. Or, like, if it's a sheer rock face, I, I suffer from vertigo. And it's something that I struggled a lot with because I hated it about myself when I would go up to tall places and I just couldn't do it. Like, I, I couldn't go climbing. And, I mean, I, I love outdoor stuff like that. I mean, I I used to surf a lot. Um, I'm going to get back into that this year. but And I go scuba diving and go for a lot of hikes and hill walking and all that kind of stuff. But heights is just something that I really struggle to overcome. And I think for a long, 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 long time, the reason that I I struggled so much with it is because I was not admitting to myself that I was scared. Um, I was spending a long time... I mean, I'm, I'm still not sure what it is that causes the dizziness is like, is it actual, I'm actually scared or is it, you know, real vertigo? I've done a lot of research into it and I've kind of tried to teach myself about it. And once that I've accepted, it's only very recently that I've accepted that, you know, that's, that's, that's almost like, it's not a weakness, but you know, it's, it's something that I need to work on. And if I see it as something that I need to work on and overcome, and acknowledge that yes I'm uncomfortable and yes I'm scared but all it takes is to sort of build yourself up and get used to that feeling so kind of say yes it's there I acknowledge that that's there but I'm going to choose today not to listen to it kind of thing um, and it's interesting what you should say about the female firefighter talking about micro bravery um, and just doing those little I think, I think it's like little things as well that you can give yourself a pat on the back for for doing and, and for getting over. So I've started like going to climbing walls with friends and things who do it. And every time, and you know, I've not been that often just yet, but every time that I go, I try and push myself a little bit further, Mm. little, little bit, little bit, little bit. And eventually I hope that I will be able to kind of traverse all the ridges that I haven't been able to in the past and um, and sort of not not get over the fear but just learn how to live with it and um, and not let it stop me from doing things and um, so because a lot of you know a lot of what I do so this summer and um, I was fortunate enough to abseil off a sea cliff into a sea eagle nest and um, which is something a couple of years ago I would not have been able to do <laughs> not at all and um, and it was it was an incredible experience and I was I had a few tears along the way <laughs> the poor, poor guy that I was with I, I do know him quite well <laughs> um <laughs> but he sort of turned around to me at one point and I was just crying silently to myself. And he was like, are you okay? And I said, yes, I'm just dealing with it <laughs> and all the emotions out. And I was so, so glad that I did it. And the, the feeling of like kind of like overcoming something like that is incredible because, you know, you. but also I think at the same time it's, it's okay to be brave sometimes, but it's also okay to listen to those fears. So when it was like, going back to what I said about working on your own in Scotland, if you don't feel safe to do something, then you shouldn't be doing it. Mm. Um, If you're not prepared or if you don't have the skills, like it's okay not to have the skills. It's okay to say that and to take yourself out of that situation. Um, So yeah, so there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of learning about yourself that kind of goes on when you go through situations like that, and learning what your limits are, and being okay with that. Um, which is something that I really struggled with when I was younger, is kind of learning what my limits were, um, and not feeling like I had to, I had to push them, kind of thing. It's important to push yourself, but not to the point where you're putting yourself in danger. If that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, D- you said that um, your brother and your your father didn't treat you any differently and then and you also talked in quite general terms about um you know this prejudice against girls or women being Mm. being brave or adventurous is that and then in south africa everyone kind of treats treats you just more equally (laughs) is it something you've experienced personally in in the conservation sector yourself
1: Um, not not really actually and i've been i've been really lucky the thing that highlighted it to me that it, it possibly would be a problem um is actually when I started I, I think I saw it was when I started working for the BBC and it wasn't like anybody that worked for the BBC at all it was just you know someone that I met in a coffee shop in Glasgow and we were like we were chatting about it and I was telling him kind of what I did like in you know I, that I was a conservationist and stuff and he said to me um oh do you not do you not come against up against problems because you're a female? <laughs> I kind of I think I just looked at him and was like, what kind of problems would I come across if I was a female? And then he he sort of like, and he also mentioned because I was a Geordie, which I kind of didn't take to very kindly, but you know. No,
0: I can imagine.
1: Um, I think he was sort of, insane. I, I don't think he was trying to be mean. I think he was just saying there's a lot of sort of prejudice around, especially like women in in science, at the moment, right. um, and kind of in, well, not at the moment, I think it's changing a lot. and um, but a couple of years ago, you know there still is quite a drive to get more women involved in science and a lot more you know, equality in that respect. And I've been extremely lucky in that I've never felt I've never felt anyone looked down on me because be, because I'm a woman, and um, but I know that a lot of a lot of women do um especially in this sector Uh, and I think especially in the environment that I work in where I work with you know stakeholders and I work with you know quite potentially quite difficult stakeholders um, and it's a very male-driven world that I work in and it would be it would be easy for that prejudice to be there but I, I don't know if it's just because I don't allow myself to I don't I, I, and I've never known it before, so I don't realize when it is happening or I just don't allow it to happen yeah. um, or whether I've just never experienced it. But I mean there, there always was a sort of thing when I was a lot younger, so the, there wasn't a girls football team, for example. Um, mm. the girls rugby team at my high school, which I was part of, was very much um, like very very much a new thing. Um, I think equality kind of was only really becoming a massive issue when I was, when I was kind of growing up um, and I did martial arts, for example, and I never thought anything about it at the time until now. But people always used to describe me as like feisty and, um, you know, bossy and stuff like that. <laughs> I think it's just because they weren't used to a girl sort of wanting to do boys things.
0: Words that you definitely wouldn't use for a, for a boy or a guy doing that sort of stuff, right?
1: Yeah, I guess. It just kind of shocked I think I, I'd never honestly never thought about it until that that conversation with that guy. Um, and it kind of it was just the idea that I might feel inferior because I was I was a not just a a woman, but a young woman. Mm. And also a northern lass who, you know, from from Newcastle and I think there's a lot of prejudice around you know Geordies and people with regional accents that you know we don't we we don't have as much um like I'm I'm, I'm fully able to admit that my accent doesn't necessarily lend itself to like I don't know how to say this without putting myself down, I'm not putting myself down at all but I think there's a lot of ideas that the northern accent is very friendly and it's very warm but it doesn't exactly it's not David Attenborough, if that makes any sense David Attenborough sounds very um, He's he sounds very intellectual and like he knows knows what he's talking about Yeah, there's um, still
0: there's still a received pronunciation prejudice, I don't think that's gone away necessarily
1: But it was more the kind of yeah, it was more the sex thing that, that got me and I was, yeah. I was sort of I just kind of said to him, "No, I, I don't feel. I don't feel like people are surprised that I'm directing a show because I'm a woman, and I've I've been really lucky in that I've just been surrounded by, you know, incredibly very powerful women. Like the producer of the first show that I ever worked on was was a woman, um, and two of my supervisors who are very very advanced in their careers are." women and very successful and I've seen I've seen my supervisor in a room full of you know gamekeeping organizations and you know conservation organizations who are all arguing with each other just stand up and tell them that they're acting like children and <laughs> um, so I've never really yeah I've always I've I've been really lucky in that I've experienced that and I've had experiences in my life that have never made me feel that way and um, and I do definitely, definitely think it's changing um, for the for the better. I think things are getting a lot more equal, and a lot less skills are, um, are feeling that they they can't do that they shouldn't want to do certain careers because because of who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know it is still a thing. So I got asked. Um, by a guy that I stayed with in an airbnb and um, so he's a school teacher and he asked me if I would go to his school and talk about my career and talk about what I did which of course I said yes of course but he said I want you to put a spin on it because a lot of the girls in the class don't feel that they could do what you do and um, so it's obviously still there um, and yeah. but yeah it's just yeah just and obviously from from the male side as well I think a lot of things are obviously changing into men feel that they can do they don't have to do the kind of manual labor and all that kind of stuff that they used to feel they had to do in the past and they can do more creative jobs or um you know work in professions that were (laughs) it it boggles my mind that this is even a thing I mean I'm a full advocate of being who you are and Sort of, you know, going out and and um, doing what you want to do and what makes you passionate, regardless of what your background is or mm. or anything. But you know, it's nice that that men can feel as well that they can they can do professions that in the past were maybe thought as more of a more of a lady's profession.
0: Yeah. Kind of so I want to move on to um, talk about your research which you've hinted at um and i suppose there's a couple of couple of elements of it that i want to want to ask about maybe if you could just start off by briefly telling people what it's about and then what i'm really interested in is kind of exploring a bit how you went about building up um trust within a community where someone coming from your background might be might be very mistrusted right
1: yeah um well, you'd have to ask my stakeholders whether I've built trust up with them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my my PhD in very general terms is about something called conservation conflict, which is when you get two or more groups of people or organisations or whatever it is clashing over biodiversity objectives. So a really good example and the one that I work with is the moor management versus birds of prey conservation conflict Um, and you know these things I imagine it like an iceberg so on the surface you know there's this very real but very superficial dispute over say the illegal killing of an animal or the impacts that a species might have upon um, human safety or human livelihoods Um, and that's kind of like the, the top bit of the iceberg that you see above the water and that's in the media and that everybody talks about and argues about but then underneath that you've got this huge great big lump of other issues so quite often in conflicts there's clashes in kind of how people think the land should be managed and kind of like a power like power struggles and and different social status and also like people using different types of knowledge so science has seemed to have quite a lot of power but a lot of rural communities and rural professions who don't normally use science they use a lot of sort of um local knowledge and word of mouth and and stuff like that they feel they feel very suppressed by conservation organizations coming in and, and telling them they can't do what they what, what they've always been doing for centuries i'm not saying this is the Grouse Mode debate, but
0: yeah.
1: You know, talking about a lot of things like that in rural Africa, for example, where you've got big cats taking livestock, and conservation organisations coming in to try and alleviate that, but also telling the local people that they can't protect their livestock in the way that they always have done. It kind of creates a bit of a a power imbalance there. And um, so, there's a lot, lots and lots and lots of different issues that kind of underlie this surface argument and my PhD tries to investigate what they are and um, so in particular what is kind of unpicking what those underlying issues are for the Grouse-Moor conflict um, which has become over the last couple of years especially <laughs> has become extremely contentious and you know there's there's a lot of, of different people involved at different levels so you've got organisations involved you've got people on the ground involved um and a lot of what i do is working with people um so it's very very different to what i was doing for my master's project and my dissertation so my master's project was on the habitat use of minke whales and um, i used gis for that and it was very like what i would call hardcore ecology mm-hmm. but then as i was doing that i got to know my supervisor steve um, and and I, I came to realize this throughout, throughout my undergraduate degree and especially working in Africa as well, I keep coming back to it, but kind of going to countries like that and you, you, you realize that a lot of conservation is people, so a lot of the problems that you face are caused by people and um, a lot of the solutions that you have to do to solve those problems are down to people. And so, as a conservationist, there is a certain aspect of it that you, you have to understand people and what drives their actions and what causes their behaviours. And, and, you know, it's, it's it's all right not to agree with what they do, but it's also not all, not all right just to expect them to stop because you disagree with it. You have to use that understanding of where they're coming from and what their concerns are and you know, what the drivers are behind the behaviour, to then sort of work on a solution together. Mm -hmm. Um, And the problem with the Groussner debate especially is that there's a huge amount of mistrust between all of those different sides. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I guess to come to your second question, myself as a zoologist and a conservationist going into a scenario like that, it's it was very hard at the very beginning to build up trust and to build up relationships with people. So I predominantly work with um gamekeepers, landowners, people from the organizations, um Raptor Monitors, um and all you know, it's it's such a a controversial and I keep saying contentious, but you know you can say anything and it'll be taken in the wrong way. So you've got to be very, very careful with how you phrase things. So kind of what I did is instead of going and sitting down with them um, across a table, is I went out with them um, on their daily routine or on their job. So with raptor monitors, I was fortunate enough to kind of go out and survey raptors with them um, and go and monitor raptors out on estates or you know up on the top of sea cliffs for example and um, and you just kind of have chats along the way and then with the keepers as well I've never ever been exposed to shooting I've never hunting's just something that I've never really done and um, so I wanted to understand how a shoot worked and how a shoot operated and yeah. um, so I worked on an estate as a beater and uh, a couple of times, but then I also went out with keepers on their daily errands and 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 things, and just chatted to them that way. And I've made a point of going and visiting each person twice before we do the proper interview for my data collection, so that they feel comfortable with me, and they know exactly what my research is about, and I know a little bit about them and where they're coming from, and then we just have discussions. Um, and everything is completely confidential and they you know they no one's location or no one's name is used or anything like that and I don't ask them you know I ask them about illegal killing but not in not in the sense of you know oh how many how many birds have you killed this year or anything like that I I ask them why they think people might do it if they do do it um and talk more about their relationships with the other side, as it were, and why they've broken down, and kind of what they see as the issues associated with it. So there's there's many many different issues that are associated with the kind of raptor debate, which are you know land use conflict. So there's kind of been it, there's a general feeling that driven grouse shooting, especially, isn't acceptable anymore. Mm -hmm. um and you know there's a lot of talk about it's a very exclusive sport and there's you know there's there's been quite a lot of ill feeling towards specifically driven grouse cheating and and i mean this does stem from the illegal killing of birds of prey which is still ongoing which is you know predominantly why we try and solve these conflicts is to eventually have a positive outcome for the wildlife but to do that you first got to iron out all those creases and all those issues with the you know with with the conflict itself and you know I get told a lot of things that people have never ever talked about before or they've, they've never felt comfortable to to say out loud or to put their head above the parapet and, and things and I, I really hope that my PhD will have some sort of practical application after this um, but the, the arguments are really picking up heat at the moment. So, we've just had the Grouse Moor Review Group announced mm-hmm. um, in Scotland, which is looking into the the kind of looking into Grouse management and its impacts and its benefits and um, how that relates to raptors and things. Um, and it is looking like licensing is becoming is very soon going to become a rea- reality
0: in in <laughs> Scotland yeah
1: yeah which yeah. W-
0: which would mean what exactly in practical terms just for people who might not be following this so closely what would licensing mean for the yeah.
1: so so essentially it means that right right now um that you in order to own a shooting estate and um, it's not regulated um in any kind of you know official terms so what licensing would mean is if an estate is found to be um, doing doing things illegally or having improper land management, such as illegally controlling birds of prey or using um, illegal traps or setting out poisons or anything like that, that they would have so they would be given a license to shoot when the licensing comes through and then if there's any suspicion around that estate that license get, gets taken off them so they cannot shoot anymore so it's essentially regulating and um, regulating shooting or driven grouse shooting especially mm. um, and a lot of conservationists are very keen for this to happen because it's a form of regulation and it's more of a deterrent to do things illegally but I think a lot of the shooting industry are also worried that it would be easier to take a license off an estate or to stop an estate from shooting than it is now Um, and they're worried that a lot of things will go and kind of off on suspicion rather than anything else Mm. so it's yeah it's interesting to work in but it's also very it's very very difficult as well
0: yeah and um, the, the the second yeah. element that I wanted to to ask about was about the the program that you ended up working on for the BBC which was related to this topic or was on this topic and it
1: was on this topic yeah and
0: kind of mm-hmm. a how that came about and b uh what I guess we you, now let me get this right. You were directing the program. So what 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 does it mean to direct a TV program? Because people kind of know what presenters do, but um, yeah. director or producer is always kind of this mysterious title mm-hmm. that that's associated with TV programs yeah. or films, and you're never quite sure what those people do. So I'd be really interested to hear that.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. So it was it was actually it was a radio program that I directed, but it's a very similar sort of very similar in some ways but quite different in other ways and so I've been working I've been slowly building up experience and working freelance as a researcher for for tv Mm -hmm. for like factual science programs I worked on trust me I'm a doctor and and how to stay young and that kind of stuff and but that was at the BBC in Glasgow and when I started my PhD I didn't really have much time to kind of keep going over and doing that stuff so I did some work for there's a small BBC in Aberdeen which is for BBC Radio Scotland. Um, and they do produce lambwood there. So lambwood's a TV series about it's kind of like country file. Right. Almost. Um so I did a little bit of work with them. Um, but I was mostly working on a program called Out of Doors which is on BBC Radio Scotland and it's, it's about rural issues and rural affairs. Um, and general outdoorsy things <laughs> and while I was working there they found out what my PhD was on and they'd wanted to do a program on that for a long time and they asked me if I fancy directing it And um, so directing is uh you oversee the whole process so you know you're kind of the person that has the ideas and um, you kind of work on putting a script together you have an idea in mind for all the contributors that you want to be on the program and mm-hmm. um, you work on the script you go and help it be filmed and you you, you, you generally direct and um, the direction that it's going in and you have final say over kind of what the edit is and how it turns out at the end of the day and um, so you're basically overseeing the whole process and I already had relationships set up with a few people who were on the programme. And the difference between that and my PhD was that the people in it were named um, and had their professions, you know, put out there. So I had two people from the organizations. So I had Duncan O. Ewing from the RSPB. Mm-hmm. And I had Tim Baines from Scotland and Estates. The and then I had a Raptor Monitor and a gamekeeper as well. And I was very keen on just asking them all the same questions, exactly the same questions that, you you know, so so there wasn't any bias or any difference. And what I wanted to get across was that the way a lot of people feel about raptor persecution and about birds of prey and working with the land and working outside and working with nature and wildlife is very, very similar. So sort of in a way, it lent itself to radio better than it would TV because you just heard the voices, you didn't see the faces. And I I left it right until the very end to sort of reveal who they were. Um, And, you know, a lot of their stories were very similar about how they felt when they saw a bird of prey out in the wild, how they felt when mum was killed. Um, You know, it was all feelings of frustration and upset and anger. Mm some of those feelings came from different places so for the raptor monitor it was obviously a very emotional tie and for the gamekeeper it was it was a tie to his profession so he felt it put it made his profession seem a certain way and it made him very upset that people would still do that and risk putting other people's professions on the line for it and and, you know, he, he obviously did feel really sad when a bird of prey was killed um, just because it was was a bird that he'd grown up with and that he was used to seeing on his estate. Um, and, you know, we talked about the problems and we talked about ways forward. And, you know, it was, it was a really, really interesting process. And, a, and it, it was a programme that kind of sparked a lot of discussion when it came out, which is what I intended it to do. Um, and I just wanted people to... To see that there were there were different sides to it, and there's the conservationist side, and there's that very personal link to birds of prey, but there's there's you know there's also the the, the keeper in storylines and and you know based that people are people have their feelings based on personal experience and um, you know not everybody is the same kind of thing. And um, so that's, that's what I wanted to get across from the program. And it was a very interesting process and a very eye opening process. And it took an extra level of trust from those people for me to sort of not manipulate it so that it sounded a certain way. <laughs> um, can people and still, it,
0: yeah. sorry, I was just going to ask, can people still mm. listen to it somewhere?
1: Um, I don't think so. I think it's, I think it's off player. Yeah, okay. it was, it was a year ago. right? And I think, I think they only last for a month. Um, but, I mean, I'm, I am hoping in the future to do similar similar things. So, fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. Um, um, so, but yeah, it
0: was
1: good.
0: So, I, as if everything that we've discussed wasn't already enough, um, <laughs> you're also publishing a book next year as well. So, I was wondering if you could yes. say a little bit more about <laughs> the book that you've been writing alongside your PhD.
1: Uh, yeah, I can um it seemed like a really good idea at the time <laughs> and then a year later no I'm, I'm joking um so when I started my PhD I also started a blog called where the wild things live Um which I still have and I need to get back on but I've had a lot of stuff on so I haven't really been keeping on top of it but it started out as a kind of way I was sick of people telling me there was no wildlife in Britain for starters um and I just kind of wanted to show people that you didn't have to be, you didn't have to have a degree. You didn't have to go on huge treks or do crazy things to see wildlife. And um, so it started as kind of like just showing people what they could see in their back garden or just out and about. And my experience is just kind of going down to Seton Park. And I mean, obviously, there was bigger adventures on there just because I'm very lucky and I get to do them um but that's how it started and then I got a email through from a publishing company called Pen and Sword who asked if I would like to turn it into a book um to which I kind of thought about it for a while and thought is this a really good is this a good idea and then I just thought why not <laughs> you know um, I love having a social life <laughs> um so so yeah but it was it was definitely the book has been a complete labor of love and um, and I just got to write about I, f- I find what I work in is so it's it's very important work that is what I do and um, but a lot of it is human related so to kind of go back and do what I used to do as a kid and like go out and note down all the wildlife that I'd seen and then go and learn about it and make little characters out of them and talk about my personal experiences Um, was just an absolute joy and I got to do some sketches for it. So basically it's all about British wildlife and where to find it. It's called Hidden Nature Um, and it'll be coming out in the spring and it's sort of half and half between... Have you ever read Gerald Durrell's book, My Family and Other Animals?
0: I, I must confess that I haven't. No, <gasps> oh, there's going to be so many people oh, who are man. shocked that I'm making that confession. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> well, I am, I am shocked to my core. That's one of my favourite books ever. You should read it. I'm going to send you it. <laughs> but Basically, he, he inspired the sort of style of it. So he used to write about animals in such a way that they came to life. They were like a character. And it wasn't just, oh, today I went out and I saw a beetle. It was like I saw... This stag beetle and he was you know prowling around the garden with an air of like with a regal air sort of thing so you can imagine you, you can see it in your mind's eye and um, and that's kind of what half the book is about so half the book is about the characters that I've met during my wildlife encounters and I talk about my friend dogs for example and one of them and um, who are just the most brilliant like characters to write about because they've got such different personalities um and but then at the end of every section so it's kind of split into different habitat types so I've got like coastal areas and then uh, freshwater habitats and and like inland so like forests and woodlands and mountains and then urban spaces which I thought was really important to put in there um and it's kind of all about my wildlife encounters but also how other people can have them so at the end of every section or every chapter, there's a bit on how you can go and see that habitat or the best the best places to see those animals or that sort of habitat in, in the rest of the UK. So i tried to make it not so Scotland-focused because <laughs> um, a lot of my experiences are from up here. But also it's got that sort of element of etiquette in it. So how best to do this sustainably or if you find a seal pup abandoned on the beach, what to do or what to do if you find a heron harrier nest. And then, you know, it's got a very important message to it, um, which sort of changed as the year went on, because I think a lot of people, and I've, I've found this through the work with AFON as well, is that I, a lot of young people like myself have realised it's a very horrible feeling, but it's a very empowering feeling as well, um, in that we're losing our wildlife so quickly. And... In Britain, especially, that's why that's why the book's called Hidden Nature because our wildlife's so elusive and shy, and a lot of it's not very, you know, you'd notice if a rhino was kind of stomping about your back garden, but, you know, a lot of our wildlife is very small and, hmm. and hidden most of the time, so we don't realise what's disappearing until it's disappeared or until it's declined, and we need to be doing stuff now to save it. But I think that all starts with rediscovering it and discovering what you. Rediscovering what you, um, what we have, and what we need to save, Um, and being, you know, almost getting that kind of childlike passion for it again. Um, So that that was sort of what was behind the book and trying to persuade people to get into conservation, no matter who they are, no matter how much time they've got. There's always a little bit of something that you can do. Um, and it was very, it was very important for me to write the book, and I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. So, um, we'll see how it translates when it comes out. Yeah. Nice. But yeah, it was, it was, it was brilliant to write, and a nice, a nice change from a very sort of a very intense PhD I should say.
0: <laughs> Can I ask a little bit more about the writing process how how did you mm. fit that in what was like did you did you do <laughs> did you aim to do sort of a thousand words a day did you do it at like a particular time of day what was what was your kind of regime around the writing?
1: So at the very beginning a lot of it was having a little bit more experiences and um, so going out and finding the subjects I was going to write about I had a lot of Things in mind, but there were still some things that I wanted to go out and experience, um, and just gathering together all the information that I possibly could, um, and making sure that all the information in the book is factually accurate. That was really important for me. I didn't want to write stuff and then someone read it and it being incorrect. Um, so I spent a lot of time doing that and researching the book first. And then at about May time, or April really this year, I planned it out and did a timeline. And so I decided I wanted the coastal section done by this point. I wanted the urban spaces section done by this point. And for the last last summer just gone was absolutely insane. (laughs) So I was on a lot of field work at the time. Yeah. So... I was getting up super early in the morning doing some writing in bed with breakfast <laughs> driving however many hours it took to get to the stakeholder spending all day with them and then coming back in the evening and, and writing up the book then
0: Wow um,
1: and I have, <laughs> I have my, my family and my friends and my boyfriend to thank massively for keeping me sane during those times <laughs> <laughs> but it was it's it was definitely worth it I think it was something I'm a very creative person like I said earlier Um, I'm not very academically minded even though I'm doing a PhD and I love my PhD and I'm very passionate about that Um, there is a very big creative side to me as well so it sort of allowed that to come out and it also allowed me to go and have adventures which you know how how could you not want to do that <laughs> And I felt, I felt very lucky to have the opportunity to go and realise that sort of love of nature again, and get back into that side of things because I've been in academia for such a long time. So yeah, it was really good.
0: Good. Um, could you a tell us when we'll be able to get hold of your book? And b have you got any Have you got uh, anything from it you want, you want to or you're able to share? Give us a sort of to whet our appetite. <laughs>
1: Um, so the book will be out, um, in spring this year. I don't know the exact date yet, but it's looking about March around that time. Okay. So a nice springtime book.
0: And it's called Hidden Nature.
1: It is called Hidden Nature. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I can, <laughs> it's dedicated to my dad, um, because, you know, he is the reason why I'm into all of this stuff. Um, but there's a line in it right at the very beginning which i'm just trying to just trying to find in the document um, that i've got here and um, so I, I kind of finished the foreword or introduce the book by saying um, in such a dangerous time for the natural world when it is threatened from pretty much all sides we all have a responsibility to protect it in a way we all need to become conservationists whether you're a zoologist, a farmer, a builder, a student, a journalist or just someone with a little bit of time on their hands because you know if we don't know what to save how do we know what we'll stand to lose and so that that is the beginning of it and that carries a message through into my PhD as well and so I get asked a lot of the time you know how I think my side of conservation is only just becoming realized as extremely important is working with people and working with stakeholders who you might not necessarily agree with. And which has been something that I've had to learn is how to um, put my own values aside and to, you know, as, as a scientist, you should be objective and, and some of, you know, some of the opinions that, you know, from all sides that I hear, I I don't personally necessarily agree with, but, you know, I I recognize that I have to work with them, and I get asked a lot, you know, how can you call yourself a conservationist when you work with, you know, when you work with gamekeepers or whatever, and and my answer to that is, well, in a, like, like it says in the book, in a time where it's so dangerous, it's such a dangerous time for the natural world, and, you know, nature, when it as it's declining it's not going to wait for us to sort out our differences it's not going to hang about until everybody's like geared towards conservation to decline it's declining now and and the more people that we can encourage to take on conservation measures or become conservationists or become wildlife managers or whatever it is that they they are is a step towards saving the wildlife that's declining at the moment and so yeah so that's kind of that is the hidden message behind the book, and that is why I do what I do, and um, and especially the work with Afon as well is to try and inspire young people as well and connect young people across the across the UK who are who are like me, who are passionate about nature and and conservation, but also to communicate to people who aren't and um, and help them see just how amazing our wildlife is.
0: Yeah, the Afon stuff was was what I wanted to ask about with my with my final question actually so um, you hinted at this earlier that when you were a teenager your your love of wildlife maybe not maybe not fell away but was something that was less easy to be kind of public about or open about because you didn't have a network Mm of young people around you who shared that interest so I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about what role you see a focus on nature playing For young people compared to what it was like when you were when you were growing up
1: yeah so I have been very lucky I've I've grown up in the time where we've gone from social media just being kind of like Facebook and Bebo if you can even remember if you can remember Bebo (laughs) and it was just about like putting stupid pictures up and messaging your friends when I was you know a late teenager but I think now it's become an extremely powerful tool and young people these days especially I'm always I mean I still am a young person but you know people who are within the bracket of 14 to you know mid-20s are so clued in and so passionate and so driven Um, and when I first got involved with AFON which was a couple of years ago and I used to just write write blogs for AFON and things and I was just amazed by the sheer Amount of knowledge and passion that went into some of the pieces that the AFON members wrote, and I remember when the Vision for Nature came, report came out last year, just detailing what young people wanted to see for the you know the future of nature and the future of conservation. And um, I think a lot of young people, when when I was growing up, anyway. It was still very uncool to sort of be in conservation and be into nature and wildlife and there was not that sense of urgency there whereas I think now a lot of young people have kind of gone we need to have a voice because it's you know this nature is going to be our future so therefore it's up to us to sort of drive that movement to protect it Um. And that is what I'm seeing at the moment is that so many people are passionate about doing that. And that's where I see AFON as having a role is that we provide that network and that support for young people wanting to do that. So we provide that platform for them to talk to each other and for them to share their their feelings and their views and their perceptions and opinions. Um, And we get some absolutely brilliant pieces of work. So blogs, we get... Um, photographs from brilliant photographers and artists um, and you know from all different walks of life who are just passionate about celebrating nature and the environment but also we provide mentorship schemes for young people who are needing a bit of guidance and so we link them up with somebody who is very advanced in the field that they want to go into so whether that be ecology or whether that be you know media or photography and so we provide mentorships for them link them up with them and then they get one-to-one contact and we also run events throughout the year and workshops workshops as well we do loads of stuff essentially and it's all to help drive that youth conservation movement forwards and keep it going and keep it sustained and hopefully help it grow and give it a bit of power and so we you know we want to get young people's views incorporated into policy and into parliament and that's something we're extremely keen on doing and and yeah just providing that platform and the network for young people across the UK who regardless of what their background is regardless of whether they want to do a degree in it or whether they have got a degree in it or whether they're doing that for for their profession or whether it's just something that they're really passionate about. We want them all to come together because I do believe that, you know, we are stronger together and we can have an influence and we can have a change on our future and on the future of wildlife. And it needs to be done now. And um, we need to put things into place now. So that is the role that I, I see a fun, playing. And I'm absolutely Excited to be part of a team that is helping to do that, and um, so we have a really, really awesome committee, and um, who are very passionate about what we do. Um, and yeah, I'm very, very excited for the future.
0: Cool. I think that's a fantastic place to wrap things up. <laughs> um, unless, of course, there's anything that you wanted to say that I haven't asked about or anything additional. Um,
1: Well, we've covered quite a lot, haven't we? (laughs) We've
0: covered a lot, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm sitting here now and it's dark. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: But, but, yeah, I think just in terms of the AFON stuff, just really quickly, Yeah. um, for anybody who's hoping to join, um, you can go and check us out. We're a focus on nature on all social media, on Twitter, we're AFO nature. Um, And at the minute, we are going through quite a transitionary period, so... Um, the website's getting a revamp, uh, our mentorship schemes are being updated and we're working on getting a lot more projects and events and workshops out there. So at the moment where, you know, we are changing a little bit, so just for people to bear that in mind when if they do go to the website or um, or they do want to join us, just to, just to keep that in mind. But we welcome everybody with open arms, of course and encourage people to get involved in the debate and and or debates that we have or get involved with our blogs or just get their voice out there and get connected yeah
0: yeah and there are there's a yeah the mentoring scheme in particular i think there's a huge pool of excellent mentors Mm -hmm. including yours truly
1: now <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly available. if you want to be if you want to be mentored by Matt <laughs> yeah
0: available to be tapped up by anyone who's interested in a career yeah. in conservation but it's a great definitely. scheme to, to have available um definitely cool. and,
1: and also if anybody has any questions about what I do or my work um my twitter is at isla underscore dawn if anybody wants to ask me any questions because I know it's quite a quite a controversial topic and i encourage discussion about it so yes if anybody wants to get involved in that that's fine <laughs>
0: that's great okay thanks very much isla
1: no worries thank you for thank you for having me i really enjoyed that
0: i really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on twitter at Wild Voices Proj, or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.